Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, from Jakarta to around the world, get ready for the Cutting Oranges Podcast, your window into the world of the Jakarta Barbarians Cricket Club, where you will hear from those that were there from the very beginning, all the way to those who are there now. From the drop catches and the thick outside edges, to the big sixes and the five wicket hauls, and all the big moments in between. So, whether you're stuck in a traffic jam on the way from Chibubur, or heading down to Penchuati on a bus, do yourself a favor and grab yourself an ice-cold bintang as we kick off this episode. Here are your hosts, John Baker and Josh Von Viana. Welcome to another edition of Cutting Oranges, the Jakarta Barbarians podcast. This week on the episode, it's Mark Sims, uh, colloquially known as Simsy. Uh, originally from South Africa, he spent a long time in Indonesia. Um, and joining me again on this journey is Josh Von Vianen. How are you going there, Josh? Baker, I'm coming in hot, mate. I'm deep in the Sumatran jungle, which is... a uh, Relevant to our recent uh, interview with Simsy, he started kicking off with his uh, Indonesian journey here in Sumatra. I'm not in um, Toba or North Sumatra where he, he was early. I'm in South Sumatra, but I'm uh, in the jungle with a borrowing some Wi-Fi. Um, yeah, so you might be able to hear the cicadas in the background, the people chatting, and uh, that's where I've been for the last five days, in and out of canals and digging holes in, in uh, swamps. So yeah, that's me, mate. It's been great. And it's literally very hot. And hear the cicadas. Um, hopefully you're COVID-free up uh, in the parts where you are. Mate, the catch-up with Simsy was uh, awesome. Um, you know, we covered his, obviously, his backstory, which is quite colourful. Uh, we covered the clubhouse. Uh, we covered the tour merchandise um, and, you know, a few on-field highlights as well. Um, how did you find it? Oh, mate, it was great. Awesome to catch up with Simsy again and you know, good to hear. A lot, of, a lot of the stuff I hadn't actually heard, I didn't know, I didn't know part of the story and... Um, you know, he's a, a fellow birding buddy of me, so it's good to hear how he got into his uh, bird photography and that kind of thing as well. So, yeah, that no, was a great interview. It was great to chat with him. Are you, popping in, are you popping into the Pekinbaru Barber while you're up there? Well, I'm not, mate. Pekinbaru is uh, Riau. It's the next province up. So uh, I have noted that, and I will be returning next time. Okay. okay, there you go. Well, before we throw over to the interview, Josh, did you know? Well... You know, since he started his uh, life in Indonesia or in, in Sumatra, and I'm going to go for another volcano fact. Um, I know I did that in the uh, one of the early episodes, but you know, it seems very relevant. He started up in the Toba area. So Mount Toba is a, uh, a huge uh, crater, essentially, um, that crater lake that was caused by one of the biggest eruptions you know, ever recorded. About 70,000 years ago, just over a tick over 70,000 years ago, it threw... 2,800 cubic kilometers of ash and lava into the air. It was the mini ice age almost wiped out the humans. Um, there's a few refuges around the world, a few pockets where we hung on and maintained a very low genetic diversity, which might explain a few things. And um, yeah, basically dropped the world's temperature by 10 degrees. So huge eruption and uh, hugely important for um, yeah, the development of the human story. 
And if you go up there, it's, you know, it, it's, it's seriously, and you've been up there, Baker, it's a seriously impressive place in terms of its size. I know it's a very big lake and it's a very deep lake. Um, and I think it's rising again very ever so slowly. Um, I don't think it's a dormant volcano. I think it's very slow and dorm- and docile, but um, but very, I think it's still uh, active a little bit. So, um, but yeah, um, thanks for that. And uh, I think with that, right, I think uh, we'll cut over to the interview that we had with uh, Simsy uh, earlier this week. So uh, yeah. Yeah, mate, I'm glad I could get through here and um, I'm going to go back to my critic smoke-filled rooms and uh, have a coffee in the, on the porch and uh, listen to nature. So, uh, looking forward to hearing the final product. No worries. Thanks, everyone, and uh, over to the interview with Simsy now. A big welcome today to our very special guest, Mark Sims. Simsy, how you going there, buddy? Yeah, all good. How are you doing? Very well. Great to have you on the Cutting Oranges podcast. Uh, so you're in Jakarta? Uh, everything's I, all good your end? I am, and I, I'm just trying to uh, develop my Australian accent, but it's not working too well. <laughs> well, you know, we hung out we hung out enough times to uh, hopefully try and change that, but uh, I think you're set in your ways, unfortunately. <laughs> so, Simsy, what's been keeping you busy during COVID? At the moment, I'm. Uh, I mean, my my entire life, I've been very very concerned about the underprivileged. So a few months ago, or maybe six months ago or so, I, I actually initiated a thing called uh, Bantuan Bulanan, which is a support program to people in need during COVID and so on. I'm currently supporting uh, three families here in Indonesia, but this extends back to South Africa so that uh, I'm also through my sister in South Africa, supporting numerous families in this time of need. So um, anything else that you're involved with? You must realize that before COVID even started, I was uh, also doing um, down in Block M, the charity work for the kids that were running around there being stupid. So at Christmas, I'd have a Christmas gift um, session with the kids outside the old um, what was it called? Oscars. So I'd sit out there with my Christmas hat on and whatever and hand out free lunches and free chicken and whatever, whatever and all the kids would get a either a pair of shoes or a shirt or something or something, something. That, That was going on for ages until some adult idiot decided to intervene and told him to fuck off. And then I stopped because the adults were getting involved and denying the kids support from someone who really cared about them. When did you start doing that? 2000 and... Oh, that's the early, early, early days of my pool playing career. So it must have been about 2002, 2003. Oh, quite a while. Yeah, yeah. No, I know that you've been supporting a number of different initiatives, right, um, over the years quite generous not just not just financially but also i know with your time sometimes as well right supporting various initiatives um well at the moment i'm supporting a uh, an animal shelter in pachatan uh, monthly okay providing uh, dog food and whatever they need cat food and whatever so homeless um, homeless animals stray animals or yeah strays and stuff like that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay 
and I'm helping I'm helping them at the moment. So I guess those who don't know you, Simzi, um, you know, you've been in Indonesia. You have been in Indonesia now for for quite a while. Um, I guess let's start with your backstory. Uh, how did you end up in in Indonesia? Well, that's quite an interesting story because in uh, 1997. Actually, on Valentine's Day, the 14th of February, I was tasked to come to Indonesia to conduct six weeks of training for some security management personnel. Um, so I arrived on the 15th of February, 1997. Um, and obviously, being a very diligent individual, I got right into it. What was interesting, though, was that when I arrived in Pekinbaru, I bought a uh, one of these, one of those books called the, uh, um, damn it. Uh, oh, the uh, travel books. Yeah, yeah, one of those travel books. So I had an hour and a half drive to the site that I was working on. And in that hour and a half, I learned to count from one to 10, say good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and a few other things. Um, so when I arrived at uh, the site, I jumped out of the vehicle and all these guests were waiting for us or hosts were waiting for us. And they promptly started speaking English. And, you know, welcome, welcome, welcome. And I chirped off in Indonesian because uh, this was probably about two o'clock in the afternoon. Selamat siang. And, well, most of them fainted, but a couple of them didn't. So that was on the 15th of February, 1997. And that was in Pekinbaru. So that was Sumatra. Um, what, was it like in, what was it like in uh, those days? In, uh, in, in, you know, you come, it's coming, you're coming in pretty hot, 97, 98, Asian financial crisis. What's Sumatra doing? I know, I know more about what was going on in Java and Bali. Was there a... Was, yeah, was yeah, there a, yeah. But you must, you must understand one thing. At that point, in the, the early um, 1997s, we hadn't really experienced the momentum yet of the intensity to overthrow Suharto, yeah? I mean, things were pretty calm and pretty quiet. Everybody was very, very friendly. Mountains of expats around and uh, everybody with their own story and with their own claim to fame. But, uh, yeah, well, I mean, we, we, we slotted in quite quickly and, and quite nicely. So I spent... Uh, those first, I mean, let me let me just clarify one thing. I was sent here in 1997 to do six weeks of training on security management. That was 24 years ago. Yeah. And I'm still here. Are so, you still doing the training? Is the training program that training program? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I mean, I mean, these, these, <laughs> these, these guys just can't learn for shit. <laughs> I actually met an expat in, in uh, Pekinbaru, not in Pekinbaru, but at the site I was working at that said to me, um, well, we were sitting in the pub just talking, and he said, if you think that you are going to come here and change everything, you're in for a big surprise. And I said, just watch me. Uh, and I'm still watching him because it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit of an amateur mistake. I think I think a few of us has turned up and thought, um, yeah, we'll be able to have, it, have a rapid impact on, <laughs> on a few things. But, uh, yeah. Anyway, so... So, you know, after those first six weeks, we, we left and we went back to, we were, there were three of us in the training team. We went back to South Africa and uh, immediately after, 
the uh, CEO of the company that we had provided this training for requested two of us to return to Indonesia as consultants. Um, so I was sent to North Sumatra in June of uh, 1997, and a colleague of mine was sent to Riau. But um, yeah, so, so I mean, that's where the whole experience started. And then obviously in 1998, May, the whole Christmas thing happened and uh, chaos ensued. At that point, I was still in North Sumatra uh, at, a, at, a, at a, a small little village called Porsia on the banks of the uh, uh, Lake Toba. And um, so, so we weren't really directly affected, affected by, the, by the riots in Jakarta and Medan and all over the place because we were pretty remote. But what happened subsequently is that in 1999, a whole bunch of activists got involved in the um, complaining about the, the state of Lake Toba itself, because one of the rivers that ran into Lake Toba ran past our site. So they start blaming this mill for polluting the river and polluting the lake and this and that, the next thing. So in 1999, um, I'd actually gone back to South Africa because my tenure in, in, in North Sumatra was finished. And then the general manager of the site up there asked me to come back because they were having problems with uh, the security. And um, these guys were blocking the roads and putting logs across the roads and all sorts of nonsense. So I drove in from Medan, basically arrived at these roadblocks and got out of the car. And in my, well, I didn't even, I couldn't even speak real Indonesian at the time, but with my uh, flamboyance, I convinced them to let me through. Uh, and then we went, I went up to the, to the site and, and we set up a, uh, an emergency response plan. And uh, well, they attacked the, the site in 1999 but uh, because of all the, the support we had from, from the management, from the site, and, and the plans that we put in place, we managed to uh, restrict damage to zero, basically. What I find really interesting about that story, Simzi, is that, you know, you've said, you, I think that we said this is 90, late 97, 90, May 98, maybe. It was, this is wild, the, the sometime in 98, 97, anyway. Um, that you've, you know, there's been a roadblock, there's been some issues with communities, some logs put across the road, whatever. However you described it, you know, what I find really interesting is that in, in the story you've just rocked up and sort of talked your way through and probably told them to uh, politely uh, fuck off, um, I'm guessing. And the reason I'm guessing that is because I heard the exact same story 25 years later in another part of the country, uh, maybe only a couple of weeks ago. And the methods, I must say, your methods haven't changed much. Well, I mean, you know, when when you when when a, when a, a group of guys can't understand English, and you get a little bit excited and explain to them how a sexual departure works, um, some of them sort of back off because the issue that I have in Indonesia is that when they're a group of ten, or twenty, or thirty, or forty, they're all full of balls and piss and vinegar, but when there's one on one, he just doesn't stand up as a man because when he's confronted with someone that gives him lemons he can't make lemonade sorry so how long were you in Medan then um I think you'd taken us through into 1999 well I was I, mean, I was I was never in Medan okay I was I was in a, oh, sorry. At a site in Porsia for two years yeah sorry North Sumatra um, following that that was North Sumatra and that's where I learned to sing some Batak songs 
Yes. Um, but anyway, I think is that where you is that where you begin your your early road into ornithology as well, or were you already a no no, already... no 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 not at all. Uh, I was I was too busy birding. No, I was I was I was too busy keeping the the lions out of the cage. But anyway, um, then I moved to central Sumatra to Riau uh, to a site what's uh, Rio Underland Pulp and Paper, and I spent three years there. So that's that's pretty close to Pekambaru. Well, was Pekambaru back in those days? I, I've been there a few times recently for work. Well, in the last couple of years, and it's well, it was, it was it was pretty interesting. I mean, when I arrived when I arrived in Indonesia in '97, I had my family with me. So my wife and and, and two of her, uh, not my children, but two of her children. So they were with me. And I mean, one of the one of the interesting things about going to Pekambaru was to get my hair cut. So we drive to to Pekinbaru, which would take a couple of hours, and uh, I'd go into the salon, and the woman said to me, um, "Okay, uh, what do you want?" I said, "Well, just the haircut." And when the haircut was finished, she said, "Well, would you carry? Would you like to karaoke?" And I said, "No, no. I mean, I'm coming here to sing." And, and she said, "No, that was, that was the end of the marriage," <laughs> which is a totally different meaning. Um, with the with the microphone against your left lip. So, uh, I mean, I must admit the ex-wife wasn't too impressed. So how do you, how, how, how is your journey from, I mean, obviously I met you, I think Josh, we, we both met you obviously in Jakarta, but how do you get from Bikambaru to Jakarta? Okay, so uh, I was with a company from South Africa called Coin Security or Coin International. The CEO decided that he wanted to send me to Jakarta in, uh, I think it was, so that was the end of my, so about early 2001, to start up the corporate office in Jakarta. So I arrived here and then found myself with a vehicle with tires that were probably bought in 1922 <laughs> and um, a vehicle that wasn't very roadworthy, uh, living in an apartment that wasn't very comfortable. Anyway, and also working in an office that had nothing. So everything that, that, that basically was put into the office, I bought. But um, notwithstanding that, I tried to get things going. Yeah, it didn't work. Uh, I ended up, after 16 years working for this company, resigning. Going back to South Africa for a very short period of time, I was sent to Mal uh, Mauritius for a month to set up a business there, which I did. And then because the guy they sent in to replace me was offered a bigger salary than I am. I just resigned and left. But so I came back to Indonesia and I was offered a job in uh, North or East Kalimantan with uh, G4S as the general manager of uh, security at uh, KPC, which is Colton Prima Cole. So I spent four years up there and then they uh, offered me a position in Jakarta as the general manager for Man services, which is basically all the man services over Indonesia, which included uh, about nine or ten projects. Uh, How many men did you have to service? Sorry. How many men were you servicing? Uh, I wasn't servicing any men. I mean, I was I was commanding. I was commanding five thousand personnel. Um, so I spent I spent another four years with them until two thousand and seven. And then one sunny day when I was having a, uh, I was actually busy with a conference call 
with the, some of our personnel and, and our, our, our regional management and Shell, which is one of our clients. And uh, our director walked in and said to me, I'm sorry, economic times are tough. I'm sorry, we're going to have to let you leave. You need to leave your office today. So basically, I fucked off. And then uh, that was in 2007. Then I spent three years or four years with a company called Russman. But uh, unfortunately, that they were into electronics, which I knew nothing about. I knew the business side of things, but I didn't know anything about the, the product. So. And this, this was in Jakarta also? Or yeah, was that was in Jakarta. Jakarta. Yeah, yeah. So that sort of ended in uh, what, about 2015, I think. Anyway, and then, uh, yeah, I, I actually decided to take a year off. So I spent a year doing absolutely nothing. Literally relaxed and did bugger all. And at that stage, ornithology wasn't part of it yet. So just to, went, put, just to just to butt in there, Simzi, just to let this, the, the listeners know like, um, that yourself and, and both yourself and me are uh, keen birders. Uh, we're, we're quite into our wildlife photography and chasing birds around taking photos. So uh, this is what Simzi's referring to. Sorry, what you is it You bought a camera three weeks ago, for God's sake. Yeah, but I've always been into taking uh, photos of insects. I was more of an insect guy. <laughs> what, what, Come on. what is it called? What is it called? Or, or, ornithologist. Ornithology. 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 And that's yeah, the... so that's basically the study of of of, of the Birds. feathered kind. Okay. Hmm. I didn't know what it was called, but yeah, okay. Yeah. So anyway, um, then. I was approached by, well, I wasn't approached, but I, I, I've had contact with a good friend of mine for a long time, uh, Glenn Gardner. And uh, he asked me if I could send in my CV because they had a project coming up in West Papua, um, which was going to start at the beginning of 2017. And then uh, following, uh, obviously, the, the normal vetting process and stuff, I was chosen for this job. Uh, together with another fella. And the two of us went up there. Uh, and I spent three years up there until the end of uh, 2019. So 2017, 18, 19. And that is where the ornithology part came in. Because I took my camera up there. And I mean, the birds up there are just unbelievable. And then uh, I joined up with uh, a new company, which I'm a director of at the moment, which is... Uh, PTSSI, which is Safeguarding Security in Indonesia. Uh, and that's where I'm at at the moment, based in Jakarta. Anyway, so. All right, so you're based, so now you've you sort of walked us through your um, your your trajectory from Pekanbaru, Sumatra, North Sumatra, uh, West Papua, East Cal, Jakarta, and back a few times. You're in Jakarta now, working for your new company. So when did the, uh, when did the cricket start for you? I suppose I think that you know, for you, when have you first started getting? When did you first start getting into cricket when you were a kid? Was it a uh, a backyard thing? Was it when you were a bit older? Um, I know for me, it was I've always I was always a big fan, but it wasn't really until university where I really got onto it. Um, no, no, yeah, maybe you know, from from my early years, I've always been very very sportive. So, I mean, at a very young age, when I was six, I started playing rugby. A couple of years after that, I started playing cricket. The quite an interesting thing is that. For me to teach myself to catch a ball, the front of our house had quite a quite a tall wall. So there were no windows. And I'd take a tennis ball and throw it against the wall 
And when it rebounded, I'd catch it. And I threw it at different angles to try and learn how to catch the ball. Anyway, so um, that's just an interesting, it's actually a phenomenon. But anyway, um, I mean, I, I, I've been into sports since I was very, very young. You know, our family, my, I mean, my sisters have played provincial hockey. I've, I'm a provincial um, rugby player. I'm a provincial athlete. But I never actually played provincial cricket, which was interesting. But in my earlier years, when I was probably about 15, I went to a, to a cricket clinic. And, um, I mean, we had the likes of, I can't remember exactly who was there, but if, if I'm not mistaken, Graham Pollock might have been there. He didn't teach me much because I can't bat for shit. But anyway, um, yeah, so we had a, a cricket clinic. And, and I mean, I must admit, my father supported me through, through sports through all my years. And, um, you know, we were, we were very, very sporty family. So, um, yeah, I mean, my, my, my cricketing interest started at school. So I played first team cricket, but I played first team rugby. I had colors in, in athletics. Uh, I played first team hockey. I even debated once or twice. Not sure about what, but anyway, couldn't have made a big impact because I can't remember winning. <laughs> anyway, so um, yeah, so so the problem for me in terms of cricket was that when I left school at the age of eighteen in uh, ninety nine in nineteen seventy eight, um, I went straight to the military. So I, I received my what we call the call up orders from the military, uh, sort of halfway through nineteen seventy eight, and I was called up to the technical service corps. And I went to my dad because my dad was had served in the military for 15 years and he um, left as a captain. Anyway, so uh, he said, I said to him, well, what on earth is this technical service call? And he said, well, it's pretty simple. You know, you're going to lie under a vehicle and change the oil and stuff and get very dirty. I said, well, I don't want to do that shit. I want to go to the infantry. So anyway, uh, it ended up with me enlisting um, because they said to me, if you want to change core, you have to sign up permanent force, which is not the regular force, which is a two-year call-up period. So I signed up permanent force, which is basically making the military my career. So that was in 19... I began on the 4th of January, 1979. I got on the back of a Bedford and drove 800 kilometers from Port Elizabeth to a place called Oatsorn and uh, arrived at the infantry training school. Uh, where I spent a year uh, and ended up as the best section leader for that year. So uh, anyway, and then I, I, I mean, I spent the next nine years, nine and a half years in the military. Um, and then I decided that the military was getting a little bit too political and a little bit too uh, welfare orientated, I suppose you can call it. So I, uh, I went into the private sector and uh, became the training manager at a security company. Um, spent quite a few years there. And that's a company that I spent 16 years with and came to Indonesia with. But the problem was that with cricket, as soon as I started with the military, there was no time for cricket. So basically, that's where I left cricket behind. And, and, and then I arrived in Indonesia. I mean, I, I love my cricket and I love watching it and everything else. So 
I've played social cricket in Indonesia probably since I was in Kalimantan because in Rio, we didn't really do anything. I mean, there were so many Americans, all they did is play baseball and I got injured. I mean, Kali, Kalimantan's, Kalimantan's going to be an interesting one. Some, I mean, I don't think we'd have anybody else who's likely to come on here who would have started their cricket journey in Indonesia in uh, Kalimantan, or East Kalimantan, I believe it was. So. Well, was, it, that, it, was that in Balikpapan? No. Um, I was based in a place called St. Gadda, okay, or just outside St. Gadda. So we had a team called the St. Gadda Saracens. Um, Mark Sterling and myself and, and a couple of other guys. Um, and, and, and we actually participated in the Bali Sixers. Uh, I forget what year it was, but I actually developed the logo for our team. And the basic message on the logo was Boulder Maiden Over. Now, there was obviously a picture of a very voluptuous woman on there. That hand logo... Hand-drawn by yourself, Simsy? Was that, were, you the, were you the artistic... Yep. You know, no, I developed it all by myself. Unfortunately, that logo was then... Uh, how do you say? I wouldn't say... I wouldn't say stolen, but by. used by another team once, uh, you know, the, the St. Gallus Saracens had basically become defunct. Uh, uh, anyway, I, I mean, I don't mind. So how many, how many teams would you have had in a place like that? I mean, were you like sort of the only team or was there two teams or? Well, the Sagala Saracens were a team and we, we played against, you know, we played against the team from Balikpapan. If they could find 11 sober people um, or whatever, you know, but, but yeah, we played a couple of games, but most of the cricket games in, in East Kalimantan were like Sixers tournaments where we played amongst each other and stuff like that. So, and then I arrived in Jakarta and uh -oh. bumped into this fella called Sean Hankin. Uh-oh, uh-oh. A place called Molly's. Danger, danger. And obviously the first thing this clown says to me, because he's a Kiwi, <laughs> Where are you from? Well, no, no, that's that's Aussie. Anyway, he says, "Hey, where are you from?" I said, "South Africa." You play cricket? It's not like how are you doing, or you know, or what do you do for a living? Let's let's just see the scene here a bit. Was are we talking? You know, is this mid afternoon? Have you just arrived? Has he has he copped you? Has he grabbed you at midnight? Eyes already rolled back. No, 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 no. This this is this Where is sort of this is sort of late evening. Okay, so this is maybe let's say eight o'clock. 839 Right. So that was before that. So mm. let's say the end of 2012 or somewhere around there. Mm. Anyway, I bump into Hankin at, um, at Molly's. And his first question is, do you play cricket? And I said, well, I, I've known to be, you know, to have dabbled around with the ball and, and with a bat now and again. He said, well, you're in. I said, in what? So, well, we've got this team called the Jakarta Barbarians uh, Cricket Club. And, you know, we want to do this and that the next thing. I said, well, hey, I, I was so full of gas. I, if I'd had a fart, I would have fucking gone out the window. 
Anyway, so it's a very familiar story, uh, just quietly. That's that's basically how I got roped into the barbarians. And I mean, his 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 pitch was really great because, from what I could understand, it was the 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 attraction for me was the amount of different nationalities that were involved and the personalities and all this sort of stuff. It, It was just fantastic. So, so that was me sold. Were you, were you a case of being roped in the night before your first game or? No, no, no. It wasn't the night before my first game. I, I think I had to wait like six weeks before I was selected because they had a test whether I could battle ball. And how'd you go in your first game? Right, I'm going to ask this of everybody. If anybody, if lots of people are claiming they don't remember um, already. The two people I've asked anyway. My first game. Yeah, do you remember what you did with the bat or the ball? Did you yeah, bat? Did you yeah, bowl? yeah. My first game, I scored 86 and I took six for seven. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have to wait for the next guest to confirm that. Um, no, since he's been pushing to get guests that were later he, in the period he, he, of he then woke up from his, history. He then woke up from his dreams the night before to a nightmare <laughs> the next day. Uh, where, where was your first game and what did you actually score? And, and, and I, you, you really expect me to remember that shit? Well, I remember my first game was at Karawachi. Oh, you're right. My first game was at Karawachi too. I scored probably nothing. As you would, uh, well, we will we will get to that a little bit later. But you will you will judge from some of my um, reports on our achievements on how exactly I have done. But anyway, I have highlights and I have lowlights, and I have sometimes I have no lights. <laughs> So what about your uh, yeah, yeah, on-field highlights then, Simsy? What can you tell us? What have you done? We'll start with the highlights, then we're going to go into the lowlights, and then maybe okay, sure. some reminiscing about the no-lights. Well, let me just explain my approach to cricket, first of all, okay? I mean, my heart is 25. My body at the moment is 60, and my brain is in neutral. Yeah, your metal sticks a bit wonky. So, I mean, you're going nowhere with that shit. To get to the highlights, I would say, I mean, I haven't, I haven't been a, an excessive scorer of runs like Barnsley and Baker and everybody else. Amen, brother. Amen. But I must admit, I have two specific highlights. One is holding my bat through against whiskey. Yeah. When everybody else was folding and actually yep. scoring 27 not out. No, I remember that. Not, not that that's a massive score, but... Anyway, 30 odd. That's a 30 odd. My other highlight is touring to Ho Chi Minh City on our first tour and getting five for 27. Yep. So, I mean, on field, those are probably two of the highlights. Mediocre, I just loved feeling at gully or point because no sucker would get the ball past me. I thought so so, anyway. I I thought it was because of all the chat and the banter behind the stumps. I wasn't called cheetah for nothing, okay? (laughs) So, I mean, those are are probably my, um, I mean, those aren't massive highlights, but I mean, on the field, you know, to me, to me, it's really not an individual performance that, that depicts the, uh, the highlight or the low light for me, it's the camaraderie, the the spirit within you play with 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 uh, you know 
how you play the game, um, the friendships that you develop on the field, off the field. And, um, you know, when you, when you get beaten by 100 runs or you, you win by 100 runs, to me, that's irrelevant in the, the greater scheme of things because life is not about how much you beat the other guy. Life is about how you actually manage to gain or, you know, gain something from it or be able to offer something from it. So anyway, uh, I have a few lowlights. Before we get to the lowlights, can I just say that that whiskey innings, uh, I'm glad you said it. Otherwise, I would have uh, I would have asked you about it. Was that the game where we were really low on numbers as well? And um, like, I think it was just before like the Bangkok tour or something of 2015. Is it, Was it that game? Because I think you or I batted for a, a while together, I think. in And I thought you scored about 34, but... Um, uh, no, I scored 27. Okay. Uh, scores are irrelevant because I know you batted for a long time, um, if not batted the whole innings, right? Because I think we only had eight or nine players. Was that that game? Well, I can remember the specific game, but I mean, I, I know for a fact because... JP, whatever his surname is, uh, Rishi, was standing there saying to me, or, or, or saying to the field, oh, don't worry, guys, this, can't, this guy can't hit the ball because I've got one, 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 whatever. And then I went four, 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 blah, blah, one, four, four. So, yeah, he was... Uh, I forgot about that guy. He was a uh, particular class of... Uh, yeah. Us. Do us, yeah. Yeah, that does it too. Yeah, yeah, and he actually said to me uh, at one stage through my innings, "Hey, Mark, this isn't the pool game, okay?" Um, to which he I might... did not respond. Not in he English, must... anyway. <laughs> he must have. I, I actually, it's funny. He didn't really alter his sledging much because the only time I've really had to deal with him was him saying something very similar to me. Don't put a guy there. This guy can't hit it there, you know, then boom, boom, straight into the spot where he's telling them and he's got to change the field. I, I feel like he was quite unsuccess, unsuccessful in getting um, getting into people's heads, but he still managed to come across as a complete twat. Lowlights. It was a day when, uh, what's that guy's name? Bahamar or something, the, the left-hander, plays for whiskey. Was oh, I know I know who you mean. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell you his name. Yeah, I think his name is Bahamar or something like that. Anyway, this this is one of the a good thing. One of the one of the guys that that whiskey have brought in from Bali or wherever the hell he was or whatever, and paid for his flights and so on. And uh, anyway, we were playing against them, and you know, we were going along and struggling a bit, I suppose. And then out of the blue, the captain, being Benny Burgess, says to me, "I think it's time for you to bowl." You know why it probably happened? I'm guessing it. He probably just blinked or had a vision, and he heard these stories about was it five for twenty-seven in, in uh, Hanoi and something, and he just goes, "You're up." Well, no, well, he, he was obviously very confused. But anyway, um, so I started bowling these funny off-spin, no-spin bullshit, and basically the over went like. Pretty much the over that I bowled to Graham Pollock when I was a youngster, you know, four, four, six, four, six. And ultimately it ended up with the captain saying, well, I can't set a field to this shit. All I had to do <laughs> was put someone at fucking deep wet wicket. 
and we would have caught him out in the first ball. <laughs> Can't set a field to this shit. Well, Ben, if you're listening, apparently you can, and you should have, and you didn't do a very good job. So, uh, yeah, first well, ball should have had anyway, a go at mid-wicket. So that was that. Was that. So those are my low lights. So, Simsy, I've just looked up your stats. Um, that that uh, it was 29 not out, uh, was, and that was the 2014-2015 season. So uh, that was that was probably also my highest score. Yeah, I'm assuming that was your highest score. Um, I mean, uh, for the Barbarians. Mm, yeah, I think that over you were talking about that none for 23 in the 2016-2017 season. Yeah, but that, 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 that didn't include any wides, yeah? I mean, it wasn't the same, maybe. Yeah, no, no, they fine. all had the pitch. They all had the pitch and were wide. They just got absolutely pumped. Unfortunately, after hitting the pitch, they didn't hit anything else. To be honest, 23 is not... None for 23, I mean, in this day and age, none for 23 off and over is not that bad, right? Uh, I mean, it's bad, but it's not that bad. Yeah, I think I think I, I think I, you know, from memory, we were we were sort of even Stevens and uh, you know Ben was looking for something special, and he we, we needed we needed something there, and uh, it wasn't what he anticipated. I think I think that's where the where the angst came from. Simsy, you um, maybe talking a little bit about the off-field highlights, and I think there's a there's a ton of off-field highlights uh, when I think Mark Sims. I think you've done so much for the club. And I think, you know, probably speak for most people, not that I would want to speak on anyone else's behalf, but I, definitely for me, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I want to talk maybe first about the merchandising um, and, and you know, just we would go on these cricket tours. It was an annual cricket tour. It was once a year. Um, and I think the cricket tours that we've, we've, we've done have been um, Saigon, Manila, Bangkok, uh, Hong Kong, Manila, and... Um, I think for you know most of those tours, uh, you know you, you've, you've organised some amazing merchandise, right? And just some of the things I remember, um, obviously, you know the tour shirts, the playing kits, but it goes well and truly really beyond the field. It was, you know, I remember for the Manila tour, there were passport bag tags, and um, I think there was uh, you know frosted beer mugs and coffee mugs and and all sorts of stuff. And then I think on the Bangkok tour, there was you know a stuffed elephant with the Jakarta Barbarians Bangkok 2015 tour. And that was, you know, that, that, that's all stuff. And, and as I said, memorable stuff that the guys can have around the house. I mean, I've got it in my buffet here or in my cabinet here. It's just, it's full of, your, it's full of the great merchandise that you'd organised on, on these previous tours. But then also whilst we're on the tour, you know, it was, I mean, I remember the Bangkok tour where, um, you know, number five bar welcome, you know, Bangkok and number five bar welcomes the Jakarta Barbarians 2015 Bangkok tour. And then the, the river cruise that we did, which I think you also organised, but then, you know, throwing the banner off the side there. And I think we did something similar in Manila. Um, just amazing merchandising um, on these tours. You know, I guess what, uh, what's, where does the inspiration come from to, uh, to, I guess, where's the budding merchandising, the merchandiser in you come from? Well, I just want, I just want to correct you on one thing. Uh, Bangkok was not bar five, it was bar four. Oh, sorry. Anyway, so, <laughs> sorry, um, sorry. Yeah. Anyway, um, I mean, as, as far as merchandising is concerned, this goes back to probably my, my pool playing days in, in, in Jakarta. Because uh, in the earlier days, playing billiards or pool or whatever you want to call it, things were very, very stagnant, you know, and, and, and in, in some instances, boring. There was just no, like, hype around it. 
So even in the in in the pool playing days, I create banners and, and and stuff like that to basically project the the either the personality of the team or the intention or uh, objective of the team or something like that. So it sort of started over there. But when I got involved with the barbarians and we started doing these tours, I mean, it, it just sort of came naturally that you know. You don't just want to go on a tour, get on a flight, get over there, play cricket and come back. You want to have something that's going to remind you of your experience. So with that, and, and I must acknowledge a, a really good friend of mine, uh, Andy Johor, who is the guy that actually manufactured all this merchandise after we'd sat down and, and basically got the concepts together and he came up with designs and, and then... You know, I chose the designs and whatever, whatever. But I wanted stuff that was really tangible and also practical. I mean, the elephant was probably not, but there are a couple I've of... Still got, I've got two. I've got one, one on my spear well, bed. Well, there, 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 there are a couple of uh, people's girlfriends or wives that fell in love with the elephant, but anyway. I think it was very practical in that regard. It was yeah. <laughs> a token to be left uh, left behind for the, yeah, but uh, thing, for the wife. You know, things like passport holders and key holders key or, yeah. or stuff like that. You know, th these things are things that you can keep forever. Mm. And they were made of really good quality products. So, you know, leather and, and whatever. And I mean, one of, one of the things uh, I had him make was uh, these beer glasses and stuff that we had in the clubhouse which were fantastic. So, you know, this is the Jakarta Barbarians brand. And when you're talking about the brand, you want it to be professional and you want it to be exciting and you want it to be sought after. So basically that was my initial um, intention with, with merchandise. And in my opinion, it, it really came out well. So uh, I'm really proud of what, what Andy and myself have achieved with it. I think the um, I think that's probably a good a good time to pivot to you know what was what I would say was sort of the high water mark with with all this stuff and uh, you know you were not only important in you know pulling together all this merchandising for tours and um, being a really you know integral part of the club in terms of um, the social side of things as well and and the clubhouse really um, is sort of yeah, like I said, the high watermark of all this stuff where we had, you know, we used to go up there and you'd have all the merchandise from all the previous tours sort of plastered around the walls and um, up the stairwell or, you know, it was basically everywhere you could go. So maybe we can we can uh, switch over to sort of talking into how, how we got the clubhouse together and how you started that and what was the inspiration, uh, what were the... Uh, the often, you know, the conversations that happened before that, you, you know, I, it used to be in, above Everest, right? So, like, how did you convince uh, Saki that it was a good idea to let him have half his bar anytime we want? Well, in all honesty, the upstairs of Saki's bar was basically defunct because there was nothing happening there. Um, but the concept of the clubhouse came, came up with uh, probably a few comments from some of the members, but... Um, it also came up with opportunity. So I knew, I've known Saki for years, even though he's not a good friend of mine now. But uh, I mean, when we were finished playing at the Gandhi's or 
the Chibabus or wherever, we'd always head off to a pub somewhere, you know, and I know we would be we were being sponsored by EP for a while, so I mean EP would get uh, a lot of our patronage. So I basically decided that look, you know, in all other parts of the world, people who play cricket in a club generally have a clubhouse. So why don't we create the clubhouse? And uh, I went and spoke to Saki and I said to him, look, what are you doing with your second floor? And he said, basically nothing. And I said, look, we would like to open a clubhouse there. We'd set it up um, and so on and so on. We would only buy alcohol from your place, obviously, uh, and we would support you and so on and so on. So it was a, sort of a win-win situation. Uh, and he agreed, um, you know, and, and then I went ahead and, and got all the all the uh, memorabilia and stuff in there and, uh, you know, signage, you know, upstairs is the Jakarta Barbarians Cricket Club and all this sort of stuff. So, I mean, in the end, I was really, really proud of, of, of what we'd achieved there. And, uh, I mean, we had some fantastic nights up there with our local DJ, Johnny Baker. Um, and, I mean, it was just that, that opening night still resounds in my mind where we were all sitting up the stairs with the Jakarta Barbarians logo behind us, um, you know, and everybody dressed in the same shirts, everybody representing the same brand. It was just fantastic. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really I'm really proud of what we achieved there. So, yeah, that was great. So, so just for the listeners, right, let me maybe uh, describe where we are, what, what, what it is. So Jakarta, as everyone's probably worked out by now, is a really traffic jammed packed city and uh the clubhouse uh was upstairs from a bar called everest um which no longer exists if i'm not wrong right it closed down a few years ago yeah. um this part of town was is really gentrifying a lot of the old pubs and bars have uh, are being upgraded into hotels and things as as you know land becomes even more scarce in in jakarta so this was located in south jakarta and really sat between the uh, Sudirman uh, business district and, you know, the expat enclave of Kamang. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of expats lived around that area. So you're either up in up in the northern part of southern Jakarta around Sinai and Senopati, uh, Kuningan, or you lived more down towards Chilandak, Kamang, a little bit further down. And, and Block M was just a really great halfway house Um you know, either guys who worked up in, in, in the city and then were coming down in the evening, or if you lived up, if you lived and worked up in that way, you could, you know, it was only a 20 minute, 45 minute, one hour drive in, in, in through traffic, but it wasn't a two or three hour journey across town. So it was in a, in a great central location for everyone in, in sort of smack bang in the middle of South Jakarta. Um, the bar was only really being used on the ground floor. Um, and they'd have a, a live band in there three or four or five nights a week. Um, Simsy used to sing his. Sim, he used to do his uh, Batak uh, numbers on there, which uh, was a highlight of my uh, time in Jakarta. Um, but but yeah, really only really only being used um, downstairs. And uh, you know, we uh, well, Simsy got to talking to the uh, to the owner and uh, said, "Hey, look, let's let's utilize that space upstairs." So to get up there, it was great because you sort of had to just sort of shimmy past the band that was playing on the uh, <laughs> on the on the floor. You walk up the staircase. And then up the top of the staircase was this massive Jakarta Barbarians logo, which we, we you know, which we described with uh, Barnsley on the previous episodes. Um, and it was just, it was massive. It was a massive sign. 
Um, and then you would turn right and you would basically enter a second floor clubhouse. We had our own pool table up there. Uh, they put a TV up there for us. Um, you know, they had bar fridges. They had, a, a, I think, two beer tap. So, you know, if we wanted to throw a barrel on, we could throw a barrel on. Um, they put in some speakers up there. We, I bought in an old laptop, probably hence why I was the one DJing because I knew the password to the, uh, to the machine. And then, you know, I think um, all of our memorabilia then went up there. Um, and, you know, we really cleaned the place up, right? Because I, I remember the first time we looked at it, right, Simsy, it was really dusty and hadn't been used for a long time. And, I can't imagine anyone had been up there for a long, a and, long uh, time before you guys turned up. Yeah, yeah. And look, we, we really made it our own, right? And that was, that, was, that was ours for a good two, three years, right, Simsy? Yep. Yeah, it must have been because uh, we can, we went up there and I, I remember it was great. You just give our, if it wasn't Saki, you'd give some one of the uh, bar girls a call and say, I'm coming up with a few guys. Well, can you please put a barrel on? Uh, we'll be there at seven and whatever time you turn up, just walked up. You know, and I had my um, 30th birthday party there. I invited a lot of people from Bolgor and a lot of guys from the cricket team. There was a lot of sort of non-cricket events and sporting events and birthdays. And, you know, it was just a great place to to, uh, to hang out and have, have some fun. <clears throat> as long as we don't talk about 2015. I was about to say, Simsy's going to hate me. Um, my favourite memory there was uh, the Japanese rugby team, the uh, Cherry Blossoms beating South Africa in the uh, yes. Rugby World Cup. That was, was my highlight. Yep, that that was my one. highlight. That was one of my highlights from the, uh, from the clubhouse. Yeah, I have very distinct memories of that night. And I, I you know, <laughs> this was during the World Cup. It was... Uh, Japan versus South Africa, when they, you know, famously beat South Africa, I think it was very early in the first half, we were giving Simsy some gripes and uh, giving a bit of a poke here and then. For those of the, you know, this is a, this is an audio podcast, obviously being a podcast, but uh, for those of you that, that don't know Simsy, have never met him, he's, he's got one of the most lethal cut straight through your death stairs that you've ever seen in your life. You didn't need to say many words, this bloke, and he just sort of glances you a look and you think, oh, I've got to be careful what I say here. And I, I remember that night, Baker, we, 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 we sort of stepped away from the poking at one point. We sort of gave him a five-meter radius. It was sort of disgust as well. We, we said, you know, look, hey, I think we need to lay off Simsy because it's looking like Japan might actually win and we're not really sure what's going to happen. And he's looking at you like he's probably actually going to kill you. Yeah, and, I moved uh, to the other end of the room and I'd yeah, want it to be nowhere near the rest of the night. <laughs> yeah, that's was, right. Uh, you know, I think uh, I was uh, definitely fairly vocal saying, geez, imagine if Japan actually gets up here. Surely not, right? Um, surely you wouldn't want to be that, you know, that first sort of tier one rugby team to lose to Japan in a World Cup. And, yeah, um, I mean, I was, I would just wanted to annoy him so much that I threw, I think, 20, 30 bucks on them when they were paying like 25 after that first try or something like that. And then, uh, that was another reason to sort of step away as the uh, game went on. So yeah, I was I was definitely uh, crawling into my shell as the uh, as the stairs were getting. I mean, even more intense than what they already are at the best of times. But I mean, that rugby World Cup. I think we talked about that on the last on the last um, podcast. You know, barring a few, uh, uh, you know, some major upsets in both the rugby and the uh, and the spectators. Um, I think you know that was we were up there. We were up there for all the major games, especially on the weekends and then during the week and the finals. And I think there was a Australia. It was an Australia, the Australia New Zealand game. Do you remember we packed a scrum after we one of the scrum? Yeah, God, I was so drunk. That when was we did the Australia that. New Zealand game. That was great. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was. You know, it was packed. We had guys up there retirement. People would bring. You know, it was such an open 
sort of arms held open place that you know I was just bringing mates that you guys had never met before and yeah probably right. never yeah. never would never normally go to a place in Blockhead didn't even know Blockhead was around you know or that part of Jakarta I was bringing them from Bogor science science guys or whatever and they were just having a great old time you know so and I think they're really friends up there and, yeah uh, yeah yeah for sure yeah. it was uh you know and I think that's that speaks wills to the uh the work that you did Simsy and you know pulling that all together it was just it was just such a great spot Probably what you wouldn't have seen, Josh, is uh, especially during the World Cup, right, where there's a game on every second night or uh, or whatnot. Throughout the whole week, you know, the weeknights, we were all popping in there to watch a game in the evening or whatnot, right? It was it was fantastic. Who won that World Cup? Yeah, I mean, we did we did we did have a few clowns popping in that weren't invited, but I mean, that was the nature of the place because it was just such a such a inviting place to go. And uh, I mean, for me, in terms of the Jakarta Barbarians, that's probably my greatest memory. Uh, it was fantastic, fantastic place, and uh, very fond memories from from up there. So one of my biggest memories from the uh, from the clubhouse was the um, we did some of our um, end of season presentations up there, yeah. uh, and we started getting our own awards. Um, and you know, we had we had those three D printed trophies of Burgess's face um, yeah, because yeah. he used to he used to. He used to get MVP every year, right? But I think the bigger thing that I remember is, you know, I think we put together these PowerPoint slides or whatever just to try and just bring in all the content from the year, the photos, photos from tours, photos from games, um, you know, Burgess sitting around in his underwear after games or Hankin doing that weird stretch that he did that, you know, made the Jakarta post or whatever. But uh, I remember Simsy has, I mean, Simsy's a very artistic man um, and uh, he used to write these poems, Man of many talents. Um, man of many talents. Um, but do you remember? I, I mean, I remember some of the poems. But Simsy, do you have any poems you may want to? Uh... Just be- just before that, we get into that. I, yeah, I mean, I remember being at one of these awards ceremonies. I can't remember. I think it was probably post Bangkok, so it might have been the 2015 awards ceremony for the club where we had a we had a chat. But um, I was not anticipating anything like this coming from any of us. And uh, Simsy's a bit of a dark horse on this one. And when we got this, these uh, poems, I was well impressed and I was in stitches. So what poems are you talking about? <clears throat> sonnets, maybe you refer to them as. They... I don't, I don't, okay. I mean, I don't, I don't write sonnets. I don't write odes. I don't write poems. Are you a limerick? I write rhymes. Oh, hip hop. I didn't pick you for a rapper. No, no, no. I'm not a fucking rapper. That's not me. So yeah. what do you want to hear? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what. I, 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 you know, in the beginning, when I got involved in all this, this sort of rhythmic gyration bullshit, I called it the Barbar Tales. And um, I, have, yeah, one, I have one here which relates to an evening session that we had at Molly's after we finished playing which I can read to you. Mm. If you are ready, I can go ahead. I am ready. Born ready right, man. so this is called The Barbar Tales. I think this might be the original one that I actually wrote. So, the Barbars played the Indians at Chibabur this week. Another stunning victory is all that they would seek. Everyone was early, and Johnny won the toss. The captain's first decision had Burgers at a loss. The ground was dry and hardened. The morning was quite hot. We opened up the bowling. 
but were not quite on the spot. They started pretty strongly. Their openers at their best. And we were still long over from the damn Oktoberfest. We were leaking sundries, but Burgess nailed two scalps. Then dropping six tough catches resulted in some yelps. We could have cut their final score by 30 runs or so, but fours were slipping by us as our hands had turned to dough. We clamped out on the run rate as their innings moved along, but Barnsley had the man flu and Kunal's shoulder wasn't strong. So Kunal bowled some spinners, a stumping off first ball. Hankies trying to figure out why the ball didn't spin at all. They finally reached 300 and we knew we'd had a fight and keep our heads together to get the chase just right. We started with a flourish, one five six the stand. Later on we'd stutter, the chase was not quite as planned. They opened with a wide ball and their captain sledged a bit. He reckoned our young Burgos, for batting wasn't fit. Benny was offended, smashed the four while standing tall. Then he told their captain, Go find that cricket ball. Then on came the chucker, New York Yankees nominee. His arm was bent past 15 for everyone to see. He was controversial. He'd already thrown his bat. When Lindsay hit him right in front and we all went up, how's that? So Barnsley shouted picture, then captured evidence. Video from the clubhouse and even from the fence. Sent it out on WhatsApp and to the JCA. We hope they'll take some action and make this chucker pay. While Berger started cramping, Baldy held his end. Ben was doing the goose step because his knees just couldn't bend. Ben was out on 80 and so he took a rest. Whilst Baldy reaches 50, still not quite his best. John joined up with Eki to scramble 40 more. We had to make an effort to reach their massive score. Then everything went, then everything went pear-shaped once John and Eki went. Their bowler took a hat-trick. Sean Enzo's soul was spent. Barnsley played some baseball when the chucker came on last. He bowled a little beamer and Barnsley's headed past. Their captain's quaint behavior was driving Barnsley mad and the ground fell, fell deadly quiet as he shouted, you so bad. Simsy made a comeback, but did not much at all. One batsman hit 100 because Simsy dropped the ball. His bowling was pathetic when it came down to the crunch. So his only contribution was bringing out the lunch. 236 we finished as Barnsley's kind is shot. The chase has been quite valiant, though the score we have not got. So thanks to all the barbars for striving for our aim. Without great individuals, life would just not be the same. Very that good. That was great. And uh, doesn't that just capture and validate some of the stuff that we discussed with Barnsley as well? Yeah, yeah exactly. Who would have thought that some of these stories were written down in, uh, in prose at this time? <laughs> Sorry, rhymes. We've, we've, on the last podcast, we found the, uh, the barbarian, you know, Rosetta Stone or the Dead Sea Scrolls or whatever it was. And uh, now we've just got this small little sprinkle of Short history. But Canterbury Tales. Mm. Now just this uh, nugget tales. of gold that uh, 
it seems he's got uh, you know documented away. Um, do, do, do you like want the newest one? What's the newest one? Well, I mean, we're all in COVID, aren't we? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, here's the COVID cricketer. Oh, go on. I mean, uh, it's, it's it's pretty short, but I think it epitomizes my experience during COVID. Is this fresh material for the listeners? This is very, very fresh, as in last night fresh. As oh, in wow. written for the podcast, exclusive for the Cutting Origins podcast. Here it comes. So, this is the COVID cricketer. I always thought that 2020 was just a fleeting cricket game. It turns out it was also the year that COVID came. The fields were soon deserted. No sledging and no bitching. I found myself alone at home, cutting oranges in my kitchen. I try to be constructive, considered a naughty deed, but never could find more than one to create a centipede. My mind suit started drifting to friends and games and tours, to pubs and flights and merchandise and alluring cruise brochures. I'd be in bed by seven, but then the nightmare came. Sorry, then the nightmare hit. The captain blew a fuse and said, I can't set a field to this shit. We're all still isolated, submerged in famous grouse, wishing we were roaming free and getting pissed in our clubhouse. So that's it, boys. Very Love good. It. Very good. What 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 makes you think of this stuff? I mean, how do you how long does it take you to come up with these uh these little artistic gems? Well, that was thirty minutes last night. So with that, I would love to uh, rip through the the final six uh, questions. It's now time for the last over six questions to end the inning. Ooh. Okay, first can question. I, can I can I before you go there? Can I tell you a story? Please. I want to tell you a story about going up to Baldies because okay. Baldies has always been a, a great place to go. Yeah. It was a fantastic place to go and play cricket and the legends tours and all that sort of stuff, getting on the bus, playing street cricket in block M before we went up and all this sort of nonsense. Okay. Yeah. But the one story that sticks in my mind, which Josh reminded me of as well was the night that we slept over there in our tents Oh, yes. You know, in all sorts of different configurations. And Saki, the owner of Everest at the time, this was a pub sixes weekend. And everybody believed before the evening that there were six geese yeah. on this yes. specific location. Yes. And when we all woke up in the morning, there were only four. Yep. And it developed into a momentous search and frantic uh I, I don't even know what to call it but 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 like there was an anxiety hanging there, over the there group. was there was certainly so and after all the running around and carrying on and whatever um Baldi's wife actually told us there were only four <laughs> yeah. so that was yes i think it was you me enzo um saki was it anton he's he's so You've gone camping out there and left a gate open or something, and you thought you'd been responsible okay. for no, no, so, so, geese or what's going yeah, on yeah, here? No, 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 like, no. What no, would so, give so, you that sort of level of anxiety over a couple okay. of uh, glorified chickens? No, no. So, so, so it was a two-day pub sixes tournament at Baldy's place, right? And we were we camped that we camped. We took tents down and we just stayed just behind the clubhouse. We slept in these tents, and these geese were loud as hell, bellowing all night. 
right? And, you know, when we got there, because we hadn't seen geese there before, right? And they're in this little cage just sort of behind between the, 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 the weekender and the clubhouse. And we'd all sort of, you know, oh, yeah, here's the geese. Oh, how long have you had the geese? What are you going to do with them? Are you going to eat them? Are you going to, what are they doing, right? Uh, he said, oh, yeah, we let them roam free. They pick the bugs or I eat the frogs. Or I don't know what, eat the insects. Anyway, we all thought there were six. We all thought there were six geese. I don't think we were told that there were six geese, but I think we all assumed that there were six geese. We woke up in the morning, right, and we had had a ton of alcohol. And I think Saki went crazy thinking that there was a ghost in a tree or something. And I don't know what, he was off scene ghost women in floating above trees or something and his his driver or his security guard was trying to just keep him calm and whatnot we woke up in the morning i think simsy was uh was you know on the tools on the on the barbecue um cooking up a nice fine spread as he's uh as he's been known to do and um you know we started getting up and i think enzo simsy and i were up first and we were all looking at each other and um the geese were a little bit quieter than what we remembered the, from the night before and so we went out there and we counted them and there was four. And in our minds, there was only four. So we were then running around going, shit, um, in, in the craziness and the haze of the night before, did we lose two geese? Did someone let the cage out? Did they, did they open the cage? Did the geese fly off? How did, we, how did we lose the two geese? And then by extension of that, how the fuck are we going to tell Baldy that we've lost two of his geese? Because unless someone else came in in the night, we can't use any excuse. Shit, we've lost two geese. Um, so, you know, we started saying, hey, how many geese did you count yesterday? How many geese did you count yesterday? And it's like, and then like, don't go over there and look, just how many did you count, right? And it was oh, five, six, six, right? And like everyone we asked was saying six, right? Without even going and double checking. So everyone's like looking at each other going, oh shit, there are six geese. And, and they're like, oh, how many is there now? And I'm like four. And they're like, what the fuck happened to the other two? So all of a sudden we're running snowballed out. Snowballed out of control. It, it, seriously, it had snowballed and, and the anxiety was building, right? And so, you know, Baldi's wife comes out in the morning, right? She's the first to arrive. You know, she comes over with a coffee. Hey guys, how you going? Everything, everything's okay. Was the, was the night good? Yes, the night was great. Um, and we're all looking at each other and um, I can't remember who, but one of us, you know, striked up the courage to ask, so um, how many geese do you have? And, uh, and she said four. And there was just this massive collective sigh and everyone, I think, started laughing going, oh, thank God, because she's like, going, what, 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 what half the morning going down the gully looking yeah. for non-existent geese. Yeah. And, and she's like, why are you guys all acting weird? And we're like, well, we thought there were six geese and we were wondering how the hell we were going to explain to Baldy how, how there's now only four and we'd somehow lost two, but no one could remember how two may have even come to have been lost. So um, so when Baldy came out, we actually then told him, right? And then he's looking at laughing. He goes, no, I fucking hate the geese and all shit, I've gone. They make too much noise. So it's like, oh, we might've been doing him a favor, but we were so scared about explaining to him that we'd lost his geese that... Um, that we're all, you know, we're in a state, real state of panic. Um, it wasn't a very pleasant morning with a hangover as well. But uh, we actually Jeez. thought... I know I think, what you mean. I can imagine I we, Yeah, I, I actually think that we thought that... Because Saki went crazy the night before. I think that we thought that Saki may have done something to the geese. Um, because he, he was off trying to climb trees or something. I don't know what. But, um, but yeah, there was that was uh, definitely yeah, a was highlight. A because light. he thought he saw a ghost or some shit. Yeah, he he went he went crazy. Um, one too many bottles of Jack Daniels or something up there. He, he went... <laughs> one too many bottles of Jack Daniels would be very. Good. One too many bottles of anything is not a good not a good sign. <laughs> he went no he he seriously he went nuts. Um, 
And uh, I remember I slept, I slept uh, slightly downhill. And um, did you have who'd you tend up with? Were you guys on I was one by my, I, was, I was by myself. Thank you. And thank God. Oh, no, no. I thought someone might have had a big family tent. I don't know how. This, I mean, I, oh, no, I we camped up to, there on my own and stuff. I just thought, I don't know what you're what you're No, we went to, um, I went to an Ace Hardware. Um, oh, I just got to stay beforehand and grab, yeah, grab, grab little $30 tents. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. They were like two man tents, but, you know, for, for bull A size, one man yeah, tents. With a Lila Black mattress, was it? I think it was like, just bring a pillow. And it was bloody cold, actually. That's, yeah, it does get cold up there. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, cold yeah. up there. Uh, anyway, that, but but uh, geez, the, there was a panic in the camp the morning after. I think the panic was twofold. Firstly, on the geese side, and then secondly, because Saki just wanted to keep partying, and I think everyone just wanted to go pass out and sleep. He kept waking people up to keep going. <laughs> he, he went crazy because I think everyone else, Simsy, do you remember? I think everyone else stayed at that hotel nearby, right? And we camped. Yeah, well, quite a few of them went down to the hotel, but we decided we're just going to crash up there. Because we had a, we had a, I mean, we had a barbecue, we had meat, we had anything ready. So, is this we the night we blew off? Anyway. Is this the night we blew off fireworks up there as well? Nah, that was that was the night that I was there. I was there for the big fireworks. Oh, that was a different one. Oh, okay. I remember we blew fireworks. We up. did. We yeah, we discussed that last week when we were up there because now the clubhouse, you've got the, you're actually on the. So you've been up there back since he's yeah, yeah, in the valley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, we were sitting out there looking down, thinking how awesome we'd be to have the fireworks now, sort of. You know, looking out over the field, so yeah, actually, that would be pretty cool. So, Simsy, uh, the final six here we go. Um, your favorite post match watering hole, Clubhouse. good answer. <laughs> give it the give it the you is said. There, it is there is there any other? Uh, some people probably say their car, some people probably say Chiverball Pavilion, like Barnsley last week. No, no. Um, but uh, but no, I yeah. Fantastic. There's only one clubhouse. Next one is uh, which tour was your favourite? My favourite was well, in terms of cricketing prowess, I would say Ho Chi Minh. But in terms of enjoyment, I must say Manila. The first Manila tour or the second one? First one. I think you threw up in the back of a bus on the second one. Yeah, yeah, I know that. But just, just, I mean, just look at the roof. At Rogues on the first one. <laughs> yes. Um, who opens the batting in your first 11 for the JBCC? To be quite honest, I would say, and, and this is going to surprise you because you have no idea of my history, I would say Barzi and me. Okay. And who takes the first ball? I do. Very good. Which tour cruise was your favorite? Has to be Bangkok. Very good. You're stuck in traffic coming back from Karawachi. Who do you have in the car with you? Is this by choice or is this by... <laughs> by choice. It's by choice. Who do I have in the car with me? Well, in terms of entertainment, I'll definitely have you, Johnny. Thank you. In terms of intellectual conversation, I'll definitely have jo uh, Josh. Oh, wow. thought you were about to say me again. If the type game in the JCA final is one over to go, the opposition needs 15, 20 runs, whatever. Who do you trust to bowl us to glory? Jared Seifert. Ooh, Jailbait. Jailbait, That was his nickname, yeah. was his nickname Jailbait. 
It's been very colourful. It's been very delightful. And um, I've got a very small tear in my eye. Um, but uh, Mark Sims, Simsy, thank you for uh, cutting oranges with us. Yeah. Simsy, thank it's you very a, much. It's, it's good been to an absolute you, pleasure. I promise you that. You've been indulging in the Cutting Oranges podcast. <laughs> Hosted by John Baker and Josh Von Vianen. A walk down memory lane of the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Jakarta Barbarians Cricket Club. Stories on this podcast may be embellished by the guests, and recollections of these events may vary. If you never look at an orange the same way again after hearing this, then we have served our purpose. Until next time, we'll get you to push back down to third band to save the boundaries from all those edges coming through. Sounding a lot like you were, you 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 may have come close with the committing some sort of uh, grievous bodily harm on a on a yeah uh, with a cricket bat or with whatever other thing you had. You had well, got. I was I was I was umpiring at the time. He had a bat and I had a pen. He was at a distinct disadvantage.